Opening the Door is a podcast series that uses storytelling to help trainees and mentors understand the impact of bias and discrimination in the training environment and how to mitigate it. I have with us Gerardo Mapome. Gerardo, how are you today? I'm doing great. Thank you so Opening much the Door for is a podcast series that uses storytelling here. to help trainees so and mentors understand the impact of bias and discrimination and in the training environment and how to mitigate it. I am currently a professor of social and behavioral sciences with Fairbanks School of Public Health in APUI. I have been with public health for three years, but before that I was with the School of Dentistry for 13 years. And I was checking my background and I realized that I've been in this business of academia for only 25 years. So that has been some, some time that I've been in this line of, of duty, I guess. And as I understand it, you've worked both in academics and outside of academics as well. Is that right? There was a time that I was working as a general practitioner in dentistry, but there was a time I was working for the private sector with Kaiser Permanente. That is a large HMO. I was with the Northwest Division that has a large research center for research in the public domain. It's not industrial research. And this is the Center for Health Research in Portland, Oregon. But most of my career has been in academia, in dental schools, most of them, all of them, public universities. Wonderful. Thank you. So that gives us some context then into really what is the crux of our podcast, where we ask our guests to share a story of a time that they experienced bias or microaggression in their training path or even early in their career and how they manage that and how they wish others around them may have best supported them. So would you be willing to share a story from early in your career where you felt like you may have experienced some bias or microaggressions? Many years ago, I remember that I was at the University of British Columbia. I was then an assistant professor and one very senior faculty member made a comment during faculty assembly that it was a bad idea to accept Latin American students because they were primarily a bunch of drug dealers and that he had heard from his colleagues in in the United States that uh, that was generally a bad idea. And at the time I was just recently arrived at University of British Columbia and being generally a very nice place, I was taken aback by that kind of comment. I thought it was unnecessary and out of place. And quite frankly, I saw that the dean, for example, was uncomfortable with that comment. And when we later talked about it, he said, you know, this is completely out of uh, order. But that was a long time ago, and things were not the kind of uh, front and center that they are today. And at the time, I thought it was a very unpleasant kind of perspective. I wasn't surprised because he was a very old-fashioned, very conservative kind of person. But I did not feel that I was armed with the resources to really push back on that characterization because at the same time, it wasn't against me. It just happens to be on my category as a Latin American dentist or a Latin American uh, faculty member. Is there anything you mentioned that your dean was a bit uncomfortable in that situation? Did anyone speak up and say anything? Do you wish that anyone else in the room may have said something as a junior faculty member that would be a hard situation? It would have been a good thing. But Vancouver, in general, is an extremely cosmopolitan place. I will say that of that faculty body, there were like 50 or 60 full-time faculty members at the time. I think that there were probably five 
Canadian-born faculty members. The remainder were from Finland, US, uh, Brazil. I mean, you name it. It was, uh, I like Vancouver. It's a super cosmopolitan. I don't think that at the time uh, people really took all that uh, seriously because it was just an off comment by a person who was known to be a bit of a salty kind of a, a character. But at the same time, it was entirely inappropriate. I'm telling you that this was probably what... 25 years ago. So it, 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 was, it was a different time. And I think that uh, there has been substantial progress in making sure that things do not have to receive a pass simply because, oh, well, he doesn't mean it. Or, oh, she's, she's just joking, that kind of thing. So it is the kind of thing that you will expect that there will be greater sensitivity to these incorrect characterizations. So you mentioned time, the idea that this is something that occurred a number of years ago. Certainly, we know that that means that bias is not gone. Bias in the training environment is not gone entirely. With that in mind, when these kinds of issues occur nowadays, maybe not as explicit as this, how do you as an advisor, as a mentor to junior faculty and to trainees, how do you try to best support those coming up when they do experience these kind of maybe quieter approaches to bias? Well, in some cases, it is actually quite difficult to address because it is by omission that there is a bias, not by commission of an active role of, uh, of discrimination. I can tell you, for example, I spent 13 years in this IU School of Dentistry, and I know that there were a minority of faculty members that made a point of not talking to us foreigners. Most of the research faculty at uh, IU School of Dentistry are foreign-born, and some of the local dentists that were faculty there, they literally made a point of not acknowledging that we existed. Now, how can you offset that kind of situation? It's very hard, except that I asked uh, uh, some of the people that were from Mexico, Brazil, I say, well, do you have the sense that when we meet with Dr. and so and so on the hallway, he never returns a greeting? So, yeah. I notice that. Or you get into the elevator and basically you don't exist. That is very hard to, to address. However, one of the points I always make is that if there is something that will make people feel better because you show that you are with them, then that's something that you should do as a, as a person. Now being a full professor, I guess that I have the power to try to correct things right there, right then when that happens. I don't think that it is a pervasive problem in some organizations as much as in others. I can tell you, for example, Fairbanks School of Public Health, we are highly sensitive about those things because of our great involvement in health disparities and social issues. So it is simply that uh, units within IU have different positions in the learning curve of how to deal with this kind of uh, uh, interactions. I think that we're becoming better. And I believe that just showing that you generally agree with uh, having a level playing field for everybody is, is a great idea. I can tell you, for example, that last year I was in really uncomfortable about the anti-Asian rhetoric coming from the federal government. And I wanted to get a motion in faculty assembly saying that the faculty should stand shoulder to shoulder with our Asian colleagues, because even though we could do nothing about the kind of rhetoric, we could say very clearly that we simply reject this kind of thing. Interestingly enough, one of the faculty members asked me something that I thought it was a good idea. I said, well, don't you ask? our Asian colleagues, whether they want to have this kind of uh, statement made officially. And I asked them uh, privately and they told me, you know, I don't think that we would like to have this thing done. Mainly because they felt, perhaps for a good reason, that they did not want to attract attention. 
And I think it is just a matter of tact, asking those people that you think you're helping whether they want to have something done on their behalf. And in this case, my colleagues told me, you know something, don't worry too much about it. It, it is better if we just let this thing die down. And eventually there was a change in administration and I'm not really sure things are getting any better, but at least you can, you can at least sense that it's not an official position or something that comes from the highest levels of government anymore. But I think what you're saying there does speak to the complexity of the issues around supporting whether we're talking about junior colleagues or trainees who may be minoritized in their institution or in their program or may be experiencing bias in other places. And how to best support an individual is often in the eye of the beholder, right? It is in the, you know, that person's interest. So with that in mind, if you were to give advice to kind of your former self, right? So think back to assistant professor Gerardo, who's just starting out and experiencing, Mm -hmm. you know, what are sometimes, as you said, in this case, sort of bias by omission what do you wish you know, or what advice would you give to junior folks who are just coming up right now? Well, I think that my junior self 25 years ago lives in a different world compared with where I live today. And I think that there are a lot of mechanisms capable to addressing some of these explicit or implicit biases in academia and in other organizations. I don't think that we can compare the two things because at the end of the day, what they could have done and what was acceptable 25 years ago is different from what is acceptable and what you can address in in this day and age. However, the most important thing is just try to make sure that people are treated like human beings. That is absolutely the essential number one kind of thing. And even though that perception of being treated like a human being may vary a little bit from person to person or from generation to generation, at the end of the day, is simply just trying to be respectful of the grand people, the, the ability to speak for themselves and to provide a safe place for them to talk about themselves and about their experiences. That, in my opinion, is really the most important element of where we need to go from now on. Because it really is a matter of making sure that people are evaluated on the merit of their achievements, on the quality of the scholarly productivity, on their quality as a teacher, on the willingness and disposition to engage with the students so that they become effective learners. This is not about having more or less melanin in your skin. And that goes both ways. For that matter, if you want to know my opinion, I really think that it is problematic that uh, people from one race to be favored because they don't have melanin in their skin. I also think that sometimes we seem to run the risk of thinking that we have to accept or establish quotas of groups of people. The reality of the matter is that academia is a merit-based system. And while the merit system is not necessarily perfect, it is sufficiently explicit for all of us to understand that if you want to make progress in your career, you need to touch certain bases and move and engage in certain level of productivity, original ideas, integrity, and very clearly laid out pathways ahead of us to become better and more accomplished academics. One of the things that I heard you talk about in that comment is related to just the the way in which we think about academic work and advancing in academic work. Could you talk a little bit about how you help your junior colleagues and your mentees to uncover maybe some of the hidden curriculum of the academy? We know that, you know, the way that we think about promotion and tenure, for example, Mm -hmm. I myself am a 
first generation college student. And so I often have to explain yeah. to my loved ones and parents what tenure is and why it's important. It <laughs> so, right. I know you've done a lot of work with trainees and junior colleagues, you know, helping them through, let's say, the promotion and tenure process. So can you talk a little bit about how you make those systems that maybe are not as explicit or as open to everyone, how you kind of help folks you know, support them in that process? I think it's absolutely essential to have two elements in the mentoring, helping junior faculty or, or staff, for that matter, understand what are the unwritten rules of the, of the organization. The first one is that there should be no surprises. Absolutely no surprises. A person that is hired for a position should understand very clearly what is expected of her. Where is that person going to be meeting expectations and where they are not going to be? Let's say it's a faculty member. The expectations for grants, productivity, papers, service, teaching, quality of teaching, and the fact that these are going to be evaluated on an interim basis at the, the three-year review has to be very clear from the moment that person is, even before being hired then reiterated and put that in writing when that person is uh, already on board. And every step of the way on an annual basis, and certainly by the three-year review, there has to be a very cordial yet very direct assessment of how things are going. That eliminates the likelihood of surprises before being hired, after being hired, halfway through the promotion and tenure process. And by the time they're approaching the moment of tenure and promotion, there shouldn't be no, no surprises. If you have if you have done your job as a mentor or as a chair, that junior faculty member understands very clearly where he or she is located. By the time they come to some of those evaluations, whether annual or the five-year or six-year review for promotion and tenure, they should be quite familiar with what was expected of them and if they fulfilled that expectation. The second element is that when we hire people, staff or faculty or students for that matter, when we admit them, we have to set them up for success. And that doesn't mean that we have to do the work for them. We have to do the heavy lifting for them. We have to avoid any kind of stress or, uh, on them. What needs to, to happen is that if you are going to hire a, a faculty member and the line of research, the line of scholarly work of that person is aligned with the department or with the areas of strength in a school, you are setting up that person for success. If you hire a person that is going to be floating a drift in a discipline where there is no strength for that person to grow and to latch onto, to gain momentum and then eventually become an independent scholar, then basically you are putting that person at risk. If they are lucky and if they are very good, they might survive by uh, swimming on their own. But the truth of the matter is that hiring people entails having clear in our minds how that person is going to be inserted in a mechanism where our strengths as an organization actually become part of the strengths of that person so that the momentum is there for that person to eventually become a person flying on their own and growing and in an upward trajectory. To hire people to admit students who are going to be challenged with the circumstances of the organization for whatever reason, is doing a disservice to the organization and to the person. And just trying to get that person because, oh, well, you know, we really would like to have this kind of uh, area of research because we have nothing about that kind of thing. It doesn't make any sense. Well, basically, what you're doing is putting a person in a situation where there's a, there are a high risk of failing. So I think that a strategic 
plan for mentoring is absolutely essential if we are going to be truthful and, and really sincere about how we're going to help people grow as a students, staff, or faculty. I think that you make a really good point there that the idea of even for a trainee as a trainee is thinking about choosing a lab to join, thinking about choosing a program to apply to, that that trainee is not just thinking, oh, I want to work with this one person, but thinking I want to gain something from the system. I want to understand how my work will fit into the system is an important litmus test for a trainee or a junior faculty member as they are, you know, approaching what, you know, is launching of their career. I think that's really good advice and I appreciate that that perspective. So I want to thank you again for being with us today. This is Dr. Gerardo Malpome, who is on the faculty in the Fairbanks School of Public Health at IUPUI. We really appreciate you sharing your story and perspective with us today. Thank you so much. Absolutely. I'm honored to be here. Opening the Door is a podcast series that uses storytelling to help trainees and mentors understand the impact of bias and discrimination in the training environment and how to mitigate it.